Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I've had the great pleasure of raising four kids. My youngest is the first of the four to be a little girl. The others were boys. And at about the age of four, Grace was in our bathroom. She was looking in the mirror. I walked in. She was kind of pulling back her hair and fixing her glasses. She looked over to me and she said, Daddy, do you think I'm pretty? Daddy, do you think I'm pretty? She's four years old. She's stunning. She's beautiful. But where's that question even coming from? And if it begins at age four, what is it like when you're five or six or 11 or 15 or 20 or whatever age you are tuning in today, my friends? So what is real beauty? Where do you find value? What makes you enough? Today, we're going to have a really, I think, life-giving conversation with a gentleman who had to determine not only those questions, they're questions we all ask, but the answers to them. His name is Brian Walsh. He found himself at age 17 as a volunteer firefighter clinging to life. Brian was burned terribly, and particularly on his face. He's going to share some inspirational ideas about service about selfless love, about understanding what real beauty is, about making sure you share that not only with the reflection in the mirror, that's where it starts, but also in a community that is longing for acceptance, longing to be embraced, longing to be loved. One of my favorite quotes that he shares in this is, we have tremendous opportunity ahead to heal. This is true for a burn survivor, but I have a feeling it is true for each of us as we tune in to the Live Inspired Podcast today. So my friends, I'd like you right now to buckle up, get ready for a wild ride as we get to bring on my newest friend and soon to be yours. His name is Brian Walsh. Brian, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Well, John, it's certainly an honor to be with you and uh, I view it as an absolute privilege. Man, likewise. And I travel around the world meeting a whole lot of people who have stories that in some regards connect exactly with mine because of the, some, some of the challenges they've been through, some of the difficulties they face, some of the roadblocks ahead of them or the headwind they may face. But very seldom do I meet guys or ladies who have an almost identical story to mine. And brother, on this show, that's you. And so to have you on and to uh, meet a guy who not only has been through something similar to what I've weathered, but to see a guy who has come through it in his own description, somehow even better because of it. It is an honor to have you on our Live Inspired podcast. So before we unpack this inflection point in your story, the one that you write about, I'm going to back the train way up, not to when you were a firefighter getting ready to uh, do some life-saving work, but even before that. Talk about your childhood growing up. What, what was it like for little Brian Walsh? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, we grew up in a very uh, middle-class, blue-collar neighborhood. We didn't have much money. We weren't dirt poor, but we certainly didn't have any extra money. So we were taught to work at a young age. My father, I had a very difficult relationship with him. They, we had, I have five natural siblings. 
I only say eight. In 1959, my dad's brother and his wife were killed in an automobile accident. And my parents took three of those children and they had six children. Mm. Uh, so they were there before I was born. So to me, they were like siblings as, as opposed to cousins. Mm. So I always like to say I'm the last of eight. Growing up, did you talk about what happened to their mom and dad as a family with any frequency? Never. It was never spoken about. Ever, ever. And, and I think that was generational. You know, when things happened, boy, I'll tell you, people didn't talk about them. And I think to the detriment of my father's outlook on things, he really became somewhat reclusive, uh, whether you call it anxiety or depression, but something absolutely changed him. And from what I hear now, obviously I was in that rest, but we actually talked to him through his bedroom door. If we wanted to talk to him, he came home from work. There'd be 10 of us around the table. If they had a deal with a certain issue because somebody misbehaved or something, they dealt with it. But then my, my father went off to his room for the night. And if you had to talk to him, you knocked on the door and that's how you talked to him. So it was a, a little different, but you know, you're growing up like that. You don't think it's different. You just think that's the way it is. It is. Right. What about your mother? Mother was a, a great woman, still alive, 88 years old, still golfing. I think she's going to outlive me. Yeah, she's, she was, she was a, a great support uh, through our lives and, and still is to this day. So you, you're, you had all these siblings racing around this house. Was there one, whether it's an influence, a sibling who powerfully changed your life as a kid? Or was there a coach or a pastor, a rabbi, teacher, somebody who really stepped in and gave you an example of what a young boy could look like and the kind of things you could do? Um, I wouldn't say there was one particular individual. I think there were many, especially when I volunteered getting into fire service in high school. I had a really good high school teacher who was a phenomenal man, Bill Thistle. And my first fire chief was a guy named Jack Quinn. He was a, a great role model, a great man, headed up all the fire operations for Roman Haas chemical company around the world. So he was a, he was a very bright, analytical guy. He was really uh, a great influence on me in the fire service. So since you brought up fire service, let's just get right after it. Why does a young man, a teenage boy, decide to become a volunteer firefighter? Why step into fire services? We lived in a community where it was almost expected that you did something for your community, uh, whether you joined the EMS, you joined the fire department, whatever it happened to be. Um, and I had some friends of mine who were in the fire service and I talked to them about it. That's what I decided to do. And ironically, uh, my mother was dead set against it. My father said, let him do what he wants to do. So <laughs> as irony would have it, that's because uh, <laughs> they had to sign off on it because I was 16 years old entering the fire service. What was training like back then? Probably a lot harder than it is now. Our volunteer fire company, our community was started by ex New York City fire department personnel and they were tough as nails and we went through training and you know, people talk about practice for a game or training for something we went through i think our trainings were worse than any fire i'd ever seen up until the one i was hurt in quite frankly so you feel you were prepared uh as a firefighter you're 17 years old your pager goes off for those of us who are too young to know what a pager is, apparently young people, there used to be technology that would buzz you in case of emergency. And Brother, you, you, you get a text, you get a page that says there's a fire. Talk, talk about that process and where'd you go after you received that page? Yeah, so it was an interesting night. I was actually out with friends uh, visiting their grandparents in South Philadelphia, which was you know a good 45, 50 minutes from our house. 
on the way home, we stopped at Burger King of all places. God forbid that would have been my last meal. I had gotten home probably around 1130, went to bed. About 120, the pager goes off and we're summoned to the firehouse. Rolled out of bed, uh, down the stairs into my driveway, was using my mother's old Toyota Corolla and drove to the firehouse. On the way to the firehouse, I could see the flames. The building was miles away, but you could you could see it was a working fire. We were the second company in to tell you how intense that fire was. The first company that needed, needed more help, I could see it from where we were. You know, we got to the fire ground and um, things happened so fast. Uh, I was on the back of the truck and we dropped a, a line, it's what they terminology in the fire service. You drop a line to the hydrant to feed the water to the truck uh, when it gets up to the, the building that's on fire. Uh, finished that task, uh, got back to the engine and the fire captain said, hey, I need you to take this hose to Captain Hunter. Uh, when I got up to the door, Captain Hunter was there. He said, hey, I, I need to go over here. Please take this upstairs. And and that's how I got into the building. And Brian, you're, you're sharing this all firsthand as if you recall it like, you had, you know, like something happened yesterday. Are these your memories or is this now what has been pieced back for you? No, actually, I have, I have great memory of it. Even on the third floor when we were up there, fire chief from another company had asked me to help another fireman check for extension of fire in an apartment building. Um, before we could even check for the extension, we just heard this loud noise, which essentially was the flashover. There was a rush of dense, heavy smoke and air and heat, and it you know, forced me to the floor, and I ended up uh, knowing I was burning, uh, found the fire hose that I'd taken up there, and just crawled. I knew you know, this, is, this is where training and education is so important. You know, I knew if I followed that, it would get me out. I got to the end of the stairwell where the where I had come in, and I actually pushed the door open with my my shoulder, and that rush of cold new air uh, hit my face like nothing I can describe, uh, and I slid out a had to be a blood curdling scream. Two firemen heard me. The building was being evacuated. They went to go back in to get me, and they were told not to. Uh, Jack Quinn actually was telling him not to go back in and Johnny Glasson said, uh, chief, somebody's up there. I heard him scream. I want to give it a shot. And he said, I really don't want anybody else to die tonight. Mm -hmm. And Johnny didn't take that as a no, thankfully. Uh, he and another fireman went up, they were overcome with smoke and, and the flames. And as they were, went to leave, they hadn't had me yet. When they went to leave the flashlight that's, banded to your helmet, hit the reflective tape on the back of my coat. Um, and they just reached out and grabbed my coat and drug me out of there. So um, obviously I don't remember that very last part there being uh, dragged down the stairs to safety, but uh, I remember everything leading up to it very vividly. Brian, what is the event? What, what is the date that this all took place? October 24th, 1981. So you have now four decades of of timeline between the flashpoint between the event between the night the say the rescue and you and I speaking today when you share that story what what are your thoughts what are the emotions that you're feeling no i i still get upset about it i mean it's uh it's a uh, as you will tell your story it's a tough story to tell um 
it brings back a lot of thoughts of the physical pain that you go through. But I think it's a story worth sharing. I think it's the story besides how I feel about telling it. Quite frankly, I was not real good at telling it for a lot of years. But you get over it and things happen in your life and you you figure out that it's it's worth telling. When you say, John, I wasn't really good, really good at telling this for a number of years. What do you mean by that? I have a feeling you're not saying, John, I didn't know where to put the adjectives. You're not talking in that context. <laughs> I'm assuming you mean well, I just wanted nothing to do with this story. Well... I think I was so consumed with healing that I didn't want to look back, um, that I didn't want to, every time I met somebody, go through the entire story and uh, relive it and, and have it as an excuse or a crutch. Uh, it, that just didn't appeal to me um, much. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think I was so busy because I didn't have my last surgery until 99. It was my last surgery from 1981. So that was a long process of, yes. of getting to be this good looking again. <laughs> uh, well, save your humor for the rest of the, the, the program. Don't waste it on the front side of it. We got to, we got to trudge forward together. So you have two firefighters who essentially operate against the encouragement of the commanding office officer in front. They go upstairs, the flashlight picks up just a little bit of the back of your jacket. They pick you up, they fireman carry you out of the building. Where do they take you next? Take us down that timeline. So um, you really are going to try and get me to cry on this thing, aren't you? Please. Um, I get up in the, uh, in the ambulance is where I woke up. All this water was being poured on my face. This EMS guy was saying to me, Brian, is that you? Brian, is that you? And I said, Fred, of course it's me. Who do you think it is? I said, what are you doing? He says, so you were hurt. We're taking you to the hospital. I said, Fred, I'm not hurt. I'm, I just, let me get back out there. What are you doing? And obviously in shock. So, he, you know, he continues pouring this water on me and, and I'm arguing with him to get me out of the ambulance. And he's saying, you're, you're really hurt. You need to, to just relax and just go with the flow here. Quite frankly, when I got to the hospital, it was a local hospital. When I got there, uh, they rushed me in. Uh, obviously unrecognizable. At this point, my head was probably the size of you know, maybe half a basketball or something because <clears throat> I was still burning and swelling, as you know. The doctor was fighting, intubating me. And I could hear this conversation going on. And they were on the phone with the St. Agnes Burn Center in Philadelphia. All of a sudden, this doctor appeared over me and he said, Brian, I have to put a tube down your throat. And once I do that, you're not going to be able to speak for some time. But I need to do it to save your life. What am I going to say? Sure, go ahead. So they intubated me. And the next thing I heard was a phone call saying, the doctor answered and said, the helicopter is on its way. Now, people that know me well know I hate heights. So I was not able to talk, but I was thrashing around. There was no way I was getting in this helicopter. As foolish as that sounds, that's how in shock I was, that I was focused on not getting in a helicopter because I was afraid of heights. God intervened again. They called back and said it was too foggy. They couldn't get the helicopter up there. So I got a, the Philadelphia police uh, cornered off every exit of I-95 from Bristol Township to South Philadelphia. And I was there in about 18 minutes. Oh man! I remember everything pretty vividly. Do you remember more as you begin to wake up, not just into that first night and at the next burn center, but wake up into recovery? 
Is it more of the physical pain that you remember now, Brian, or is it more of the emotional uncertainty and angst around what had happened to you and what that could do to your future? It was all physical for me. You know, I, I was naive. I was 17 years old. I was a senior in high school. They're telling me about surgeries. I can't speak. I can't see. My, my eyelids were, were, one was fully burned off. The other was partially burned off. So my eye muscles are clipped shut. So I, if I had to see, I had to look up, you know, kind of down my nose, kind of look to even see any daylight. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it was mo- mostly the, f- the physical pain that the, and I'm sure as you went through, and I, uh, any burn patient I ever talked to says the same thing, that Betadine brush is uh, your number one ally and your, your number one enemy at the same time. Well, I never considered it an ally, but I'm glad you were able to put that on. It was a necessary evil, I should, would, would be a better way to put it, right? Um, that was two of the most painful hours a day, hour and a half a day I had. And it was worse than the burn, quite frankly. That was just my experience with it. Brian, I think it's anyone who had that experience shares that struggle with you. For those of us who are just listening to your voice and not staring at our faces right now, would you define and describe the degree of, of injuries that you endured in that fire? So it's very interesting. Uh, although only 5% of my body was burned, which is the entirety of my face, obviously my ears, uh, in the back of my neck, what nearly and what was so bad were my in- inhalation burns, the burns inside my esophagus and lungs and respiratory system. You know, it's probably the worst. I, I don't think there's ever a good burn. So people say, oh, well, you know, people who burnt their arm, they can wear a shirt and they don't see it. Nobody sees it. You see it you see the scar. You as a human being, as you, your own person, it's different than it was before. I don't care whether it's your face, your leg, your arm, whatever. So it, it was an interesting time, in my view, where I really thought, well, they're talking about these skin grafts. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look like I did before. I just got to go through these surgeries. I, I wasn't yeah. smart enough to say, you know, I'm going to look like, like this the rest of my life until I did see that. But yeah, it was, I was naive in the very beginning thinking I'd look like I did before I went in there. Let's talk about that. I, I, physical beauty. And, and I'll back into the question by saying I met a woman in New Mexico who was blonde and gorgeous and stunning and confident. And at the end of this speech that I gave, she eventually brought me over to the side and shared her story. And she got burned as a little girl on her back, on her back. I can't see it. It doesn't affect her. She's fully mobile. It doesn't slow her at all. But here it is four decades after she was born at age five. Uh, she was dramatically impacted because of those burns that only she saw and she barely saw them because they're on her back. Yours, my friend, are on your face. And they remove in no small part your face entirely. It completely changes what you see. So my, my question to you is, the very first time someone held a mirror in front of you, and I'm sure, I don't know when that happened, but the very first time that happened, tell me what you saw and what you felt. Thank you for the question. It's even the very few people ask that question. It's, I think it's a really good one. I snuck down the hallway of the St. Agnes Burn Center in about three weeks. I was extubated, uh, had my first skin graft, uh, waiting the second one. And I really wanted to see what I looked like. And they wouldn't let me. So I stuck down the hallway at 10 o'clock at night. Just told them I had to go to the bathroom. So the nurse escorted with me. And she's out there waiting. Connie, great, 
great nurse. Uh, oh, her and this other guy in my life, they really were lifesavers in there. And she realized that I had been in there just a little too long. So she comes barging in, knocking on the door, barging in, said, I'm coming in there. I had lifted my bandages up where I could uh, to see what I looked like. Quite frankly, I was devastated. Uh, I just couldn't even imagine what was looking back at me at the time. And uh, it was hard. It was really a hard time. And she finally convinced the doctors to, between dressings, let me look at my face without you know, seeing the whole face as opposed to what I could pull apart from the bandages. So it was a very difficult day uh, or evening. And then that next day when they let me see it, it was very difficult. There's so many directions we can take it. We can talk about Connie. We can talk about that first mirror, the repulse that you felt at this image staring back at you, specifically what you saw. You could describe that for our viewers and our listeners, although I don't think that's necessarily helpful. As you journeyed forward, how does a man keep breathing and keep dreaming that in spite of what he originally saw staring back at him and how radically different that face was than the original face before that fire that night? What, what, gives, you, what gives you the hope and strength to keep moving forward and keep uh, striving to get better? You know, I think looking back on it, I know what it was, but I think I just had a, a tenacity and a, a perseverance to get better. And I think as you know, you don't fight for your life in there. You fight off death. As death is almost certain in almost any time you enter a burn center as a patient, death is near certain, as you, as you well know. And we both fought it off. We didn't, I don't think we, think we cling to life. I think we fought death off. And uh, when you fight that hard to not lose your life, I don't even say winning. You don't fight that hard to win. You, you fight that hard not to lose. I think you end up, with an inner strength that it's very difficult to describe. And I don't think I recognized it then. Uh, I think when I look back at my life, I recognize that I had this inner strength to at least push through, fight off death, which I thankfully did. And at the end of the day, I was always, let me just do one more thing that can get me better. What can I do this day that's gonna make me better? Because all I heard from doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists who were talking to my parents and around my bed where this kid's never going to go out again. He's going to be a recluse. Yeah. This is what you're, they were preparing my parents for me never wanting to go out. My sister had made the comment along the way, one of them, uh, as soon as he sees this mask he's going to have to wear, he's never leaving the house. And I kept thinking to myself as I was hearing these things, because I couldn't speak, who are they talking about? They don't even know who I am. I'm not, that's not me. I'm not going to let that happen. Some of it was naive, naivety, no question about it. That you know, I still at that point probably thought I'd look pretty similar to, to, to what I looked going in. But I think we all have that inside us and we just have to find it. And for me, it was just, if I could, if I could take that extra step, if I could get myself from the bed to the chair without help, if I could get down the hallway to the bathroom without help, if I could, you know, just do that one more thing. If I, if the physical therapy or the occupational therapist came in and I could just give it that little extra, I'd get a little better result. Yeah. And that's, 
that was the mentality I had. And I don't just, I don't know how I got it or why I had it, but that's what I had. In the early days of not dying, because it starts there. And the next question is going to be about pivoting into no longer no dying now into starting to live again. But in the early days of this recovery, was it more painful to see the reflection in the mirror or to see the reflection in the loved one's face when they saw you unmasked? Um, I had people leave dinner tables when I took my mask off to eat. So I'd say both. Uh, were equally painful. The, describe the the mask, just so uh, individuals listening right now could have a sense for what you wore out, so that you could uh, you could fit in. <laughs> so it was a uh, uh, it was called a Jobst mask. Uh, it was a stocking collar, uh, naked collar looking stocking uh, that I wore over what you would typically look like a plastic goaltender's mask. And the whole purpose of that was the Job's mask, as you know, was you know two and a half times less the size of my head, so it put enough pressure to keep the scars from hardening and keloiding, et cetera. And, and I really had good occupational physical therapy. Um, I should say therapists that explained to me, hey, Bri, if you do these things, you're going to get the best result you can get. It's not going to be pretty. You're not going to think it's the greatest miracle on the face of the earth, but it's going to be the best that you can have, yeah. but you have to put the effort into it. That's what I've started really understanding, having the right people around you during your lifetime, especially at specific times in your life is very, very important because I think they were my saviors, to be honest with you. <laughs> I just, I, I feel such a compassion for those who go through a traumatic event, whether it's burns or any struggle in life by themselves. I know myself, and I'm way too weak in so many regards to have endured what I endured and continue to endure without the love of people in the community, without my spouse, my children, my parents, my, my siblings, my neighbors, my God. I could do very little of this all by how great I am because I'm not all that great. So in reading your book, it was really cool to recognize the heroes in your story. All these ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls who showed up for you and usually like right on time, right on time. So you talked about, man, I did not want to die. When, when did you make the pivot into, I want to start living? I don't want to just endure this. I want to start thriving. I think when I went away to school and I went down to Memphis State, I was living with my sister at the time. I lived down there and her family, her husband, two young children. And I watched them as a family unit and they were a real inspiration to me. I was at school and I didn't know anybody in town. It was all brand new to me. Uh, I left the community college to go down to finally leave. Uh, and I wasn't running away from anything. My major was fire administration. I wanted to be in the fire service. The rest of my life, I really thought that's where I would end up. I think when I was there and I had, before I had left, I had met my now wife. So she was becoming a bigger part of my life. And eventually, obviously, the biggest part of my life. And I think it was that, it was, not a day or a time. It was just a, a period of time in which, you know, I had left my hometown, which I'd never left before. I'm in a new city, a new school, I have people looking at me. I have, I went into a Seven Eleven. and they thought I was holding the place up and they called the cops and it was, it was bizarre, but it was, 
it was that time period where I really thought, man, these people can have great families, uh, loving families. And, and I had a loving family. It wasn't, but it, it could be better. Yeah. Unbeknownst to me uh, at the time, I found my wife uh, who had a boyfriend at the time, but I was able to win her over with my charm and wit. As I tell people today, it certainly wasn't my Robert Redford good looks. Well, it might be, man. And before I let you move on from that, if you, if you're honest about it, anyone who's been disfigured physically in any regard at all struggles wondering if they are worthy and if they will ever find love. All of us. I think we mm -hmm. all wonder about that. In particular, as young men and women, we wonder, will we ever be seen for who we wish we were? Like beauty and perfect and enough for someone else when we probably don't feel like it ourselves many times. You, my friend, we're just going to be honest. You said I'm not a Robert Redford uh, lookalike, and neither is John O'Leary. We, we both have some scars on our body or on our faces. <laughs> I would imagine, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, and said I'll let you describe it for yourself, that you struggled with whether or not you would find love after being released from healthcare. The worst thought in my mind was that I would never have a family because I loved kids. I loved all my nieces and nephews. I had a great time with them, took them everywhere with me. Uh, I was really a good babysitter for my siblings. But when I really thought about, geez, would anybody ever want to date me, much less marry me? I mean, would anybody want to go on a date with a burn guy? Because everybody's going to be staring at you. People are going to make fun of you. Not overtly making fun of you, but you, yeah. you hear things. You know, you're not, just because you're burned doesn't mean you're deaf, right? <laughs> I thought it took a, a really strong individual, stronger than me, to go out on a date with me and give me a shot. Yeah, I was, she's, she's been a wonderful partner these last 35 years. So brag on her. I, I could spend, if you want to have me back on your podcast sometime, I'll spend one hour bragging on Beth O'Leary, my wife. Unfortunately, I can't because this is your show now. So why don't you brag on your wife and what it was, what it was within her that allowed her to see beauty, not only on your outside, but also on your inside. I think that takes a, a certain kind of lens and an incredible type of person to not just immediately judge and walk the other direction, but to give someone an opportunity to, uh, to see what's really within that, that book. Well, I think at the end of the day, uh, what she showed me was her heart. It wasn't about her good looks or her brain or anything else. It was, it was she showed me her heart. And I tell my kids that all the time. Um, your mother and I fell in love, not from a physical uh, attraction. It was an emotional connection. The ability to, to talk with somebody uh, about your deepest fears and your, you know, your wildest dreams. And they didn't laugh at you. Or they didn't think they were stupid. And we just really bonded over a year and a half of dating. Um, got married a couple years later, but, you know, just really bonded in, on what was important in life. How were we going to raise children? Where was God in our life? Uh, you know, how, how is all this going to fit together? Uh, how was I going to be emotionally starting a new career, getting married, trying to start a family? When I really don't know, John, at that time, I had a real good handle on myself. Yeah. Uh, you know, how I was you know, going to make it, how I was going to find the strength to go on every day. What if, you know, people were mocking me 10 times more than they were, would I have given up? I don't know. Um, but I had a lot of faith in her. She put a lot of faith in me and we built a uh, incredible life together. You, you used the description giving up, giving up. And in 2018, so a couple of years back, 
at a time when the market was at historic highs, as you know, and unemployment at historic lows and social distancing was not a part of our lives or our vernacular, 1.5 million Americans attempted suicide. Yeah. But during a very positive time, supposedly in our lives, many of us struggled mightily with the idea of taking the next step along the way. Those of us who've been burned, for us, that rate of thoughts around suicide is significantly higher. Was that ever something that you struggled with as you were going through recovery? I never really thought to kill myself. I never had a thought of, boy, uh, you know, it would be easier if it was all over. I wouldn't say I didn't think, boy, maybe if they didn't find that blood artery line that burst and I just bled out and somebody didn't get me at the fifth minute instead of the seventh minute. If, you know, the, the time I nearly choked to death on the uh, soot that was stuck in my intubation tube. You know, at that point, you're like, man, that could have been easy out, mm. right? I mean, it, it does go through your head. I'm not going to lie to you. You know, you're like, man, you didn't do it on purpose, obviously. But uh, when you went into that tub room the next day and got your head, your face scrubbed with the Betadine brush, you're like, well, maybe that wasn't such a bad way out, right? Uh, I think those feelings are, are natural in those situations, traumatic event. I think, you know, you always can think that way. Um what I worry about in people is there's so many people that suffer in silence for, for no reason um, because we don't reach out as a society enough to people and have personal connection. Uh, I have a term in my book. I use foxhole friends and I told my kids, you're going to be lucky if you get to the end of your life and you're at the gates of heaven, and you look back at your entire life, I don't care if it's 80 years, 60 years, whatever it happens to be, and you had one friend who you could call at any hour, at any time, and they just showed up. They didn't ask you why, they didn't judge you, they just helped you. So you'll be very lucky if you have one person. Your job in life is to be that person to as many people as you can. And they have lived like that. They have great friends, they have a lot of friends, and they would do, they have just great spirit of generosity and uh, they would do anything for anybody. And if more people had that gratitude in their system um, and they reached out to other people, because you don't know what the next person's going through. Yeah, I might look different. I, yeah, I might be all scarred up, but what mental torture is the person next to me going through that is invisible? What scar is invisible? And sometimes somebody just needs a, a wave and a hello and yeah. uh, just just to feel better about themselves that day. Well, Brian, you mentioned foxhole friends. You mentioned that it's one way you try to live your life. It's one instruction you try to provide your kids. For me, one of the great concerns I had after checking the first box of finally a, a girl sees beauty where maybe others only saw scars and brokenness. The next great concern was, well, good, but what happens if and when we have kids and how might they feel about their dad? So, uh, dad, Brian Walsh, yeah. how, how anxious were you about the way your children might interact with you and the way their friends might see you? Well, um, it's funny because it did worry me, uh, as it probably worried you. Uh, you know, would they think that their dad is like everybody else's dad? I, I didn't know. There was no, no way of telling that. My oldest kid came home from middle school one day and he said, uh, Hey dad, some kids were talking about you looking different. He was in fifth, fifth grade. And I said, yeah, I do. 
And he said, well, I don't notice it. <laughs> and I had to leave the table. I was crying. Uh, that's when I knew it really didn't matter. So for the other two, I didn't really pay much attention. But they had kids ask them. They had kids tease them through, as the, not as elementary school, but as you get into middle school, high school, you know, it's just a, it's a different world. Yeah. They had people that would say things to them or make a comment about the way I looked. Um, but, you know, they took it all in stride. Brian, you were a firefighter as a young man while you were still in high school. And then you get to eventually choose what you want to do professionally. And I would imagine many of our listeners might be thinking that you chose a career where you were working the phones all the time or kind of hiding out in the shadows. But instead, you've ended up choosing a career where you are forced into face-to-face -face contact. You aren't in the shadow. You're in the brightest of the lights. Could, could you talk a little bit about the career you chose and why you, why you selected it? Well, it was interesting. I uh, had, uh, had uh, applied for a job as an intern with uh, an insurance company. The first office I went to wouldn't hire me, and I didn't understand why. And I, I went to one of their other offices who I hadn't had a week later, and that guy hired me. And it was an interesting story because he was a volunteer farm in Long Island, New York, and he was relocated to uh, just outside Philadelphia, Trevos, Pennsylvania. He said, hey, look, I'm, I'm going to give you a shot. I'm going to hire you. And I said, well, I interviewed with your other office, and I haven't heard back. And he said, yeah, they're, they're not going to hire you. The guy doesn't think you should be out in a face-to-face -face job. And uh, I said, really? And he looked back at me, and he said, as a volunteer fireman, for 30 years he was a volunteer fireman, knowing what you had to go through to sit here today, right. I'll give you a shot anytime. And that started me on the career I'm still in today. You know, Brian, I think we're all looking for motivation and we're looking to borrow it from people who can model it for us. And you certainly are exhibit A of that. When you look at the work you've done, and the six, I mean, you're one of the most successful guys in the industry. When you look at the success you've had, is it, you know, it's either or, but you can say it's yes and John, but is it to prove to the one guy who hired you that he bet on the right horse? Or is it to prove to the guy who refused to give you an opportunity strictly because of the way your face looked that he was a fool? What, what, really, what really motivates you to get up there and do profoundly good work, in particular when you were younger in your business? I think neither. I think it was, I needed to prove something to myself. Um, I didn't need to prove somebody wrong. I didn't need to prove somebody right. I needed to prove that I could live my life. And I needed to do that to myself, for myself, in my heart. I had to know I had to, I had to do something. I still wanted to help people. I knew I could never be an active firefighter again. And I really wanted to make a difference in people's lives. And I found no other career. We're there to help people retire. We're here to help them if they have a premature death. Their family can have money and have dignity and keep their kids in the schools they're going to and the house that they're in. God forbid, like you and I, they have a devastating disability. They have the funds there to maintain their lifestyle. Brian, 40 years ago, you looked into a mirror with a beautiful nurse outside waiting for you. Um, and you wept at what you saw. And you were repulsed by what stared back at you. When you look in the mirror today, what, what do you see looking back at you? A proud grandfather, <laughs> uh, a really proud dad, uh, a proud husband. And I look at 
all the people that work with me on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I just feel tremendous uh, gratitude toward all of them. Uh, all the people that gave me a shot, all the people that have helped me build my company, uh, my business partner. I, I just have tremendous gratitude for everybody along the way. I, I just feel tremendous pride in, in what I've accomplished. And I'll tell you, and you probably go through the same thing. There's times where I, I have deal with eye, my eye problems every couple of weeks. And, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you just, you get frustrated. There's times to this day, I still look in the mirror and go, boy, I wonder what I'd look like if I really wasn't this messed up. Right. I, I just think at the end of the day, everybody has something physical, mental, something that they struggle with that nobody else knows about. And all we can do is see people with an open heart and, and with love and, and hope we can help them. So let's talk about those people right now because they're listening to my podcast and they're asking the questions on this podcast. So I think we all have struggles, some of them physical. I think that's rare. All of us, emotional and spiritual and relational. What would you say to someone right now who is just looking around at the headlines, looking around at COVID-19, social distancing, social unrest, challenges with inequality, difficult upbringing, difficulties in relationships, addictions, everything we have going on in our lives. And they're just looking in the mirror, sad by what stares back at them. What, what encouragement might you have for us? There's people in my family that have this. My, my oldest boy, and I love him to death, but he's afraid to go out of the house, right? At COVID, he's got two young children, doesn't want to bring it home to them. I think there's a lot of people out there like this right now. My view of this is we live in the greatest country in the face of the earth. Uh, we have tremendous opportunity ahead of us to heal with each other. We have a tremendous opportunity to not let this virus interrupt with our lives. Uh, I shouldn't say end our lives. Interrupt it, yes. But it's not the end of our lives. It brings new opportunity. Uh, I, I will tell you, one of the greatest opportunities, I was talking this the other night to my wife and two of my kids, the greatest opportunity that COVID-19 brought me was not being on a plane 120 times a year. Was being able to sit down at dinner every night with them for weeks on end. Uh, I'm not sure if they felt the same way, but and that's where I saw the opportunity. I'm like, okay, you know, we have to do these things. Nobody wanted to get it, so we quarantined, did what they told us to do, and I just found the opportunity in it. Brian, you wrote this will be my final question before we pivot into the Live Inspired Seven. But you, you wrote what 220 pages or so about your life story. Was there anything in there that you, you were like, man, this might be a little too much. And then you're like, oh, forget it. I'm going to put it in here because I think it's going to make someone else better because of this story, because of this intimacy. Uh, there were a few of them. I, when I finished this up, I had about 290 pages and the publisher was, a lot of it was out of bounds for them. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of it did make the cut. I, I would say the one story that, that I kept in there was, was about the, the mask. And my father had all these psychiatrists and everybody saying I was gonna have to wear this mask and everything else. And I was sitting there going, okay, no problem, I'll do it. Remember, I was born October 24th, so this is probably November 15th, 20th, somewhere in there. And uh, my mother come, comes into the room and uh, she says, uh, crying her eyes out. Oh, I can't believe you're going to have to wear this mask. This is so sad and devastating. And my father walked right in behind her and said, look, son, you got to look at the bright side of this. And I said, what is that, dad? And he goes, 
you'll never ever have to buy a Halloween mask again. The humor uh, gets you through a lot. And we were luckily an Irish Catholic family with sick humor. And I think it really helped me out an awful lot. Thank you for sharing that. So Brian, we're going we're gonna to move into the finish line together. As we go through seven questions, the first one is Brian Walsh. What is the best book besides the one you wrote called Beyond the Mask? What's the best book you've ever read? I, mean, I, I think it's easy to say, you know, the gospel. I, I think that's an easy answer because we all get strength from, from those parables. I have so many, and I, I think all of them hit at different points in my life. I really liked uh, when I was in the middle of my business, I liked the E-Myth re- recent years, uh, uh, The Happiness Advantage by Shauna Kaur. I, I don't know that I have one book. I, I just think I had books that I read at times in my life that were very impactful. Likewise. What's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a young man that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Exuberance. How about that, man? I feel like you wear exuberance on your sleeve. No, no. I wish I wish I was a little more exuberant uh, than I am now. Right. Your home caught fire and all living things, your children, your grandchild, the pets, everybody's out and you have an opportunity to run in safely to run in safely and grab one thing. What's the one thing you would return with? Ashtray of my grand, my father, my grandfather who I never met, shot a deer three months before he died in 1932. He died when my mother was six months old. And we have that fair family heirloom in there, which is a ashtray, a tall ashtray that used to sit behind a chair and the deer feet from that deer are in there. And I have a picture of my grandfather and that hanging that deer on a tree and cleaning it out and those deer feet are on that ashtray and it's probably the one thing i would go back in for but given my history i should probably not go back in (laughs) (laughs) so a mutual friend michael palagon say watch out he's got sick humor he'll he'll catch you off guard a couple times if you could sit on a bench brian overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead who would you want to have a nice long intimate conversation with Without a doubt, Abraham Lincoln. What do you, what do you ask Abraham Lincoln? Uh, where did he get the strength to do what he did in so many different situations, from freeing the slaves to firing generals to making sure that war was won? I mean, it, it's just uh, the decision-making process he went through in a very short period of time on so many different subjects uh, is incredible to me. Right on. And it's important we recognize that when he was alive, he was one of the most unpopular presidents of all time. Absolutely. You know, you just, things change sometimes as history begins to reveal itself. So Abraham Lincoln, what's the best advice that you've ever received? Best advice was probably my father who told me never lose your sense of humor. Hmm. You you heeded his advice. What would you (laughs) tell your 20-year-old self, man? This kid that three years earlier was burned terribly. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Be a foxhole friend. You've done that. Brian Walsh, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? A man who loved, was generous in spirit, generous in deed, and loved his family very much. My friend, this man who was indeed very generous and loved his family very much is also the author of the book. It just came out. It's called Beyond the Mask. The author's name has been our guest today. His name is Brian Walsh. Brian, I want to thank you for enduring 
and for smiling and for stepping forward boldly, not just away from death, but into life. It's been an inspiration having you on our podcast. John, thank you so much. I, it's just reading about you, reading your books and reading your mom's book and uh, hearing of some of our mutual friends about you. It's uh, This is one of the best privileges I've had in my life. So thank you very much. Well, brother, aim higher. My friends, that is Brian Walsh. My name is John O'Leary, and this is our day. Live inspired.